0: Hello and welcome to the Burning Ones podcast. Our goal is to help people all around the world experience the love and power of Jesus and live passionately devoted to Him. We pray that the podcast is just that for you. Thank you for joining us on this journey and may burning witnesses arise for Him all around the world. Um, I want to turn once again, if you have your Bible, in whatever way you have it, uh, to the book of Acts chapter 13 once again. Um, We made it through Acts 13, verse 1, and half of verse 2 last night. Um, It will be our goal to look at the second half of verse 2 and verse 3. Um, And as we do that, uh, I feel as if my heart has been full as I've been with you over these days. Um, Friday night, we took up the intent to consider the church from the father's jealousy to give his son a bride that he promised him. A beautiful people from every tribe, nation and tongue, redeemed and harvested from the nations of the world, radically reconfigured and transformed through a born again experience, now living as heavenly colonies planted throughout the cities and regions of the world that it is the intention of the Father to repopulate the nations of the world with this family of new creatures, that it is a family, that the church is primarily a family by way of identity, by way of value, by way of purpose and mission, that it is a family first, and that that family is a demonstration of gospel power, That it is a sign and a wonder unveiling the beauty of God's own power and desire to present his son with a people. We see this people in Revelation 5 gathered round the throne, which should give all of us a joy-filled encouragement that God is going to do what seems absolutely impossible to do. He is going to give his son this people because he made a promise and the father has power to perform every promise. And Jesus gets everything he prays for. So we considered the church Friday night. Last night, it would have been our intention to consider the calling of this family, to rediscover the beauty of first love, to re-engage the mission of the church, the ultimate mission of the church, which is to minister to the Lord, to gaze upon him, to see him rightly, and to be conformed To his image and experience greater places of surrender to his leadership and lordship to have his love transform us and then to take his yoke upon us and to have his teaching become our leadership in this life and that as we yield to the one who is the word our lives are conformed as we obey the word and as we obey the word we begin to look like the one who is the word And so we considered the calling of the church. And this morning, as we look back again to Acts chapter 13, yes, these conversations, these messages, if you would, can be considered independently, but they are best considered progressively. They are enough in and of themselves, but they are meant to be put together and so I didn't just come with a handful of hot sermon.com type words, but really trying to consider God's eternal purpose and why it's relevant to each one of our lives as we are a part of this family that God is redeeming from the nations as the prized possession and inheritance of his son. And so this morning we're gonna consider the commissioning of the church. The church, the church is calling. And now once again from Acts 13, the church is commissioning. And I'm going to take a moment and I'm going to pray something that's going to seem incredibly simple. uh, But I believe that it's going to have a profound effect if the Spirit actually works this into reality in the midst of us as we've gathered together this morning. So I'm going to ask you if you would. Let's just put our hand over our heart or over our chest for a moment. I'm just going to pray something simple. Holy Spirit, I'm asking you. Right now, even as we sense your presence in the room, we know that wherever two or three are, you are there in the midst, joyfully unveiling the beauty of this man Jesus. And so we ask you first, help us to see him. We need to see him in our own life, we need to see him from our own heart. Give us a glimpse this morning that would alter our lives. And I pray that you would reconfigure every thought process, every lens, every perspective, every frame that is not in alignment with your thoughts and your value system. This morning, I pray, help us to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We want your value system to be our value system. And I pray as you do this, release fresh joy in the lives of your people to engage the mission of their day-to-day life as worship unto the Lord. Um, We love you, Jesus. We're grateful for grace, Holy Spirit. Amen. As we look this morning at Acts 13 once again, verse one says there at Antioch, there was a church. We realized that the church is a response or a consequence to the persecution that was running rampant in the church because of a madman assassin by the name of Saul. Saul, a religious Pharisee, with zeal, was legally persecuting Christians, finding those who had aligned their lives with the way. He was seeking them out wherever they could be found, ripping them out of their homes, beating them in the streets, jailing them, and even standing over their bodies as they were being executed, martyred, giving his own approval. And the church ended up scattering But it was persecution that pushed them to actually obey the words of Jesus that they had been given out of Acts chapter 1, where the gospel would exit Jerusalem and would continue even to Samaria, Judea, even unto the ends of the earth. And sometimes persecution is working for us rather than creating unique resistance against us. And the church ended up at Antioch. And we know that the church there in Antioch was a family of new creatures. So much so that word had come to the leaders in Jerusalem and they had said something is happening there. We've heard that the gospel has gone to Antioch. We've heard that gospel power is actually transforming the Gentiles. Word has come to the leaders of the church in Jerusalem that there is an extraordinary work that is being done in Antioch, so much so that they send Barnabas to go and evaluate the authenticity of what the gospel is actually producing there in another city. And Barnabas goes, and it says that after a time, Being with them, that he says to himself, this is in Acts 11, that he says to himself, I've got to go find Paul to come and be here with them. There's something on Paul's life that would be of a benefit here. There's something by way of necessity to the grace and the call to what it is that Paul is now by the grace of God that would be for the value of what God is doing here in Antioch. But when you read through Acts chapter 11, the story actually gives us details that are necessary to unlock or discover the beauty of what Luke is trying to communicate to us. Because again, we understand that Luke is the one writing the book of Acts. And Luke of a medical profession is into the details because there's always details in the details. And there's always beauty to be discovered when we get the details that are in the details. And in Acts 11, Barnabas says, I've got to go find Paul. And he says that he leaves for Tarsus, to go and find Paul. Now, interestingly enough, we know that after we are introduced to the man Paul, who is at that time Saul, at the end of Acts chapter seven, he is introduced into the Bible narrative as a religious Pharisee who is zealous to persecute those that belong to this man, Jesus. And the Bible introduces Saul in an interesting way. If you remember at the end of Acts 7, Stephen is standing there, being stoned to death, his face glowing like an angel. He is radiating the beauty of God. There is a glow that cannot be manufactured and it cannot be manipulated. His face is shining like one of an angel. We get that at Acts six fifteen. And at the end of Acts 7, Stephen is being publicly executed in the streets. He's being stoned to death. And he's standing there while rocks are flying, while enemies are raging while all demonic hostility against him is seeming to prevail in their agenda to execute him. Stephen is standing his ground and with his face glowing, there are tears flowing and he is interceding for his enemies and weeping over his executioners. What type of man is this? Interceding for enemies and weeping over executioners. And he says, Father, don't hold this against them. It sounds eerily reminiscent of the man Jesus, nailed to a tree, hung high and stretched wide, beaten beyond recognition, bleeding out on behalf of his father's purpose to provide for him a people. And in his last effort, the words that he exhorts or the words that he exclaims is father forgive them for they don't actually know why it is that they're doing what they're doing. And Stephen is there being executed in the streets. And as he dies in the middle of the streets, Saul is introduced to the Bible story as standing over him, arrogantly giving his approval. But now Saul has had an encounter, as we find in Acts 8 and Acts 9. And Jesus has come and revealed himself to Saul on the road to Damascus. And it says that while Saul is running 100 miles an hour in his own direction, doing his own thing, that Jesus intersects with him and encounters him. Man, what grace for those of us who at one point were a hundred miles an hour doing our own thing in the wrong way with all of our might, giving all of our energy to satisfy our own agenda. And all of a sudden when no one else could reach us, Jesus came looking for us. And Paul understands that grace has been extended to him that is undeserved. But is this not the message of the gospel? Scandalous grace to the undeserving one. Grace to the one that we would hope would get justice because that's our posture sometimes. Lord, get them because they deserve it. Lord, they're dark, they're wicked, they're corrupt. They've done extraordinarily hateful things, sinful things, corrupt things. Scandalous grace to the addict, to the murderer, to the thief, to the pedophile even scandalous grace beyond my own ability to comprehend how in God's goodness he could look upon such a one that has been filled with such darkness and corruption but here's Saul 100 miles an hour after killing believers after approving of their execution in the streets and Jesus comes to him extraordinary visitation from the Lord he's knocked off his horse He's blinded for three days. He's fasting. He has to have another man come and lay hands on him so that he can see once again and rise to fulfill his purpose. But interestingly enough, from this point of conversion, Paul has been unaccounted for. And how do we know that? Well, when we use all of the Bible to interpret the rest of the Bible, Right, We want to use Bible to interpret Bible. Right, We need Bible to understand Bible. We don't use opinions to interpret Bible. We don't use cultural opinion to interpret Bible. We use Bible to interpret Bible. And so I don't know where Paul is, but the Bible actually tells us where Paul has been. So as we continue to journey through the scriptures, we have Paul's letter to the Galatians. And Paul says in Galatians chapter 1 that there was a profound visitation from the Lord that he undeservingly received. And he says, The gospel was revealed to me. The gospel was revealed to me. Acts chapter, or Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 2, Paul says that it had been quite some time where he was seemingly off the radar unaccounted for, living in obscurity and seemingly hiddenness from the gospel narrative. And Paul says that it had been 14 or 15 years in Galatians chapter two, before he rose to go again to Jerusalem, 14 or 15 years, what was it that Paul was doing? I think the details of the scripture must provoke us to ask questions that we don't necessarily at all times have a jealousy for. Because the Bible is revealing the type of way of life that actually produces the type of man that Paul was. And it's not just interestingly enough in the life of Paul. Because Paul has a profound encounter with the Lord, but then he is unaccounted for for 14 or 15 years. And in Acts chapter 11, Barnabas says, I think I know where he is. I'm going to go to Tarsus to try and go find him in Acts chapter 11. There's something happening here at Antioch and Paul needs to be here. I feel from the Lord that there is something on Paul's life that we'd be a benefit to what God is doing here in Antioch. And Barnabas says, I'm going to go to Tarsus to look for him. Well, why is it important that it's actually giving us details of where Paul can be found? Because when Paul is introduced to the story, he is known as Saul from Tarsus. Paul has a profound encounter with God. And rather than running to the limelight and to the highlight reel, rather than trying to gather around, all of those who were influential or well-known or famous, rather than trying to uniquely, with an agenda now out of an encounter, try to establish himself in some sort of prominence or platform or ministry conversation, Paul does not do these things. Paul takes this extraordinary encounter with the Lord and actually goes back home. Because you and I should understand that everything that's happening at home is actually what's happening. Everything that's happening at home is actually what's happening. Is this not what Paul later wrote to those who were younger sons and ministry apprentices in the faith? As he wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter three, Paul would write these words. When you're actually considering someone for leadership in the church. Now now I know that a lot of times we get hung up on titles and we wanna know, well, like who's a bishop and who's an evangelist and you know who's a pastor and like who's this. I I think at times we need to slow down a little bit, right? Who's an overseer and who's a deacon and who's an elder. Let's slow it down a little bit and let's start with actually some of the labels that matter more to God than even those labels. Let's not start with bishop and deacon and overseer and pastor and evangelist. Let's start with more simpler tags and ways of actually defining ourselves. Let's start with something like this. Faithful. Honest. Authentic. And Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, in the consideration of those whom God is going to touch among you, and he is going to mature them and raise them up. There are certain things, there are certain qualities, there are certain characteristics. Another way to say it, there are certain evidences that you should be looking for when you are actually considering someone to relationally have influence in God's house. And one of these things that Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, in 1 Timothy 3, 5, as a matter of fact, is if a man cannot manage his own house well, then what makes you think he's going to be able to do something in God's house that he can't actually do in his own house? Because the idea is what you are doing in your own house is what you are actually doing that the greatest platform that we are privileged to stand on is the one that God has established in front of our family members at home. So good. As a husband, as a father, my platform, my reality, the place that authenticates real power and transformation is not when I'm coming to be with you for a weekend like this. Because if I know how to do something here that I'm not also doing at home, then I'm nothing more than a performer. And the reality is, is we let people do things in meetings that they're not actually doing at home. And Paul is telling Timothy, in the consideration for leadership and influence, if a man doesn't know how to manage his own house, my greatest platform is in front of my wife and kids every day. My greatest platform, because what benefit is it to me if you applaud me and amen me, but my own family is disgusted with me, for they see me as a hypocrite. My own family can't amen my message nor my life because they understand greater than anyone else, for they have intimate proximity to me, that the things that I preach are not actually being lived out in the proximity of those that I'm most responsible for. So Paul is suggesting to Timothy that the consideration of what a man's life actually looks like, consider these things that he mentions. These are things that could only be appreciated if you had a vantage point to experience someone in real life. What do I mean? Well, a man can't have an anger problem. He can't be given over to fits of rage. Well, you're never going to know that if you only gather with me on Sunday morning. Well, a man can't be a drunk. He has to be the husband of one wife. He has to have a good report with outsiders. Outsiders? Well, it's easy to perform in front of all my Christian friends. But who am I at the grocery store? Who am I in the office at work? Who am I on my school campus? Who am I when there are no Christians around that I'm trying to preserve the mask or the image or the filtered life for? Who am I? This is what Paul is suggesting. Follow a person around. See who they really are in real life before you consider them as an influence relationally in the house of God. Because if a man is not actually transformed and he's only learned how to perform, then you should not actually be considering him because you will always multiply what it is that you esteem. And it's not do as I say again, but don't follow me around to see what I do. This might work with kids, but it won't work long. My kids are only gonna follow the because I said so for so long until they begin to mature and in their own evaluation of my life and the things that I say should be valued, they are going to do their own investigation. And they're going to say, well, my dad said this was important, but I never actually saw him do it. And Paul is unaccounted for for 14 or 15 years, what is he doing? What type of life actually discipled a man that transformed the rest of the New Testament communication? God obviously believed in whatever happened to Paul and what he became over time because the majority of the New Testament once you get outside of the Gospels is actually about this man. It's the accounting for of this life transformed by gospel power seemingly unaccounted for for a decade and a half but then once he rises out of obscurity and hiddenness whatever it is that god has done god obviously amended mm, wow. but it's not only paul but we should understand that the new testament and acts particularly is trying to inform us on something that because we are not paying attention to the details most times and our value system is wildly different than the things that God actually appreciates, we are not led into similar conclusions. Because most of us, let's just be honest, man. Like we have an encounter with God the way that Paul did. Four, five, six months later, Bro, I'm going to have a logo. I'm going to have a 501c3. I'm going to have a website. I'm going to have a YouTube channel. I'm going to have a podcast. I'm going to be knocking down doors. I'm going to be trying to collaborate with other influential and other people that have power in this moment of history. I'm going to be trying to jump on a conference circuit. I'm going to be looking to preach at somebody's church. I'm going to be out trying to do something. But this is not what Paul was doing. This is not what Paul was doing. 15 years later, some of us would have forgotten about the influence of the encounter. 15 years later, we would have considered it to be a wasted moment. We would have thought about it as not granting us a return on the initial investment. Anyone who understands business understands ROI. There's the expectation of a return on the investment. But Paul has this profound encounter and he rises from a visitation with Jesus and he goes home. And there's beauty in the details because I believe that this morning, the Holy Spirit is going to give each one of us, if we would heed the word of the Lord, an incredible joy to go back home. I believe that there's going to be fresh fire to be faithful to the flame In hiddenness, in obscurity, in seemingly unknown, unappreciated, and to the world, insignificant places. But you have to understand a decade and a half and Paul is not chomping at the bit because he doesn't have a thousand followers on his YouTube page yet. A decade and a half and Paul has found a satisfaction in God and a contentment. Is this not what he wrote Godliness with contentment is great gain. Paul has found a contentment in living his life satisfied under the smile of Jesus for his life of obedience. He is deeply satisfied in God and it allows him to engage a purpose in his unknown reality, in his insignificant space, in hiddenness and obscurity that most of us despise. But you'll never engage the mission of your everyday life when you are trying to escape the reality of your everyday life. And for most of us, we're waiting on the next encounter so that God can rescue me from normal. We're waiting on the right prayer to pray so that God can rescue me from normal. We're waiting on somebody to lay their hands on me so that I can get something from somebody so that God can rescue me From normal. And if we're going to be honest, we don't have a value for ordinary. Our value system and the conditioning of the world does not lead us to appreciate what the world says is ordinary, what the world says is plain, what the world says is insignificant. And that's why we need a radical transformation in the way that we think. We need a radical realigning in the way that we see. It's why Paul is writing to Christians in Rome in Romans 12 and encouraging them to be transformed by the renewing of their mind because we need to think like God thinks so that our lives can be reconditioned to appreciate what God actually appreciates. But when we're only looking at Hollywood superstars, Professional athlete superstars, music industry superstars, business gurus, and political officiates, when we're only considering the elite among us and all of the world is trying to conform us by conditioning us to reevaluate what we consider to be valuable over time without realizing it, we begin to take on the world's value system and actually despise the things that God appreciates. But I want to encourage you that God is extraordinary in the ordinary. Yeah. That God goes all in, in the places that the world says is insignificant. That God has an appreciation. He has a supreme value. If we didn't believe these things, then we wouldn't know how to handle Isaiah 53 two. We were exhorted from them the other night in the place of worship. Isaiah 53.2, Isaiah is writing. And he says these things, and I want you to hear them. Don't assume that you've already heard. Hear this, that Isaiah is writing. He says, for God raised him up. God grew him up before us. But he says, there was nothing attractive or beautiful about him so that you would desire him. When you consider what makes Jesus beautiful, is it actually his attributes or is it his aesthetic that you imagine? Right? Jesus isn't amazingly beautiful because he's 6'3", 250, the right size pecs and biceps, right? Like he's got a six pack, you know what I'm saying? Like he doesn't have the dad bod. Like Jesus, that's not why he's beautiful. And Isaiah is telling us that there's something inherent in what you see and appreciate. But does not God even say this through the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, whenever Samuel comes to Jesse's house and he's there to anoint the next king. He's looking for David, but he doesn't know it. And what does Samuel say? Is there another? And Jesse says, well, if it's not going to be one of these seven, then it's not going to be anybody. And Samuel's like, but do you have another son? And Jesse says, I mean, I guess. But he's like, man, he's like a little guy and he's like, like there's nothing like super attractive about him. Like, I mean, he's ruddy, you know? Like, I mean, what does that mean? Like, he's just super normal. Like my man is like extra average. I mean, like, really? And Samuel's like, God doesn't look at things the same way you do. Man looks at the outward, but God is looking past the plasticity of our outward imagery. And he's actually penetrating all of the filtering and the facades that our generation has prided itself on. He's actually penetrating all the filters and the Photoshop efforts. And he's looking through to the heart. Paul is unaccounted for for 15 years. But we have to understand that this is what Acts is trying to communicate to us. In Acts chapter one, Jesus tells them, I want witnesses and I'm gonna send you power to actually produce what it is that I want. There's coming a day when power is going to come on you. The Holy Ghost is going to come on you. There's going to be an extraordinary impartation from heaven. You're going to receive real fire and power to live this life as a living demonstration. You are going to provide evidence to the rest of the world that I am who I say I am. My Father is actually readying a people for me, and I am coming back to possess them. I will send the Spirit to accomplish this. Acts chapter 2, they're gathered together in the upper room. We understand God fills the room. God puts fire on all the people, but then he sends them out into the streets. And we have to see Acts 2 as the redemptive effort from Genesis 11. Where demonically they are conspiring as the nations against Yahweh and his agenda for creation. He comes down to disrupt their building efforts and scatters them and then eliminates a harmony by way of their communication. Well, once again, instead of starting low and trying to go high, in Acts 2, they start in an upper reality where God meets them. He visits them with fire. He unifies them by way now of spirit communication and brings them low back out into a repopulating of the nations themselves. And it says that the region or the nations are gathered in that episode and hears them praising. God in all of their own unique individual tongues and Peter rises and he begins to preach and the basic emphasis of Peter's message is God came to us he humbled himself and became a man he lived among us and opened up his life to us and we publicly executed him as a criminal All of the rage and the hostility of the human experience and their desire to destroy God's leadership of love over their lives. We express this against God himself and executed him in a public arena. But God raised him from the dead. And he raised this man, Jesus, whom we executed from the dead. And he was taken up. He was ascended into the heavens in a cloud where he's now seated at the right hand and he is coming again. Ready your hearts. We executed him, but you will see him again. Are you ready? And it says that in verse 37 of Acts chapter two, their hearts were pierced. And in the consideration of the announcement of the gospel, they ask themselves, what must we do in order to rearrange our whole life to live as a response to the things that we've just received? Because the idea is this, I can't just hear what I've just heard and then assume that I can keep on living the way that I've always lived. What you've now said has placed a demand on my life and I must be willing to pay whatever price necessary to rearrange things, to live in a response or to amen the things that have been said. And it says that their hearts are pierced and we understand that more than 3,000 are added to the church. Peter rises in the midst of them and says, repent He says, be baptized, be filled with the Holy Ghost, be saved from this perverse and corrupt generation. And it says that more than 3,000 of them were added to the church that day. And then in one flow of thought, the Bible communicates to us is, and then daily, those. So let's hear this in continuity. When you respond to the gospel the right way, Acts is communicating that there is now a right way to live out a proper response. That there is a way of life that becomes a wineskin that is best going to facilitate and cultivate what it is that God is desiring to do in us and then together through us as a people. And this is the Acts 2.42 reality. And then they were daily... Devoted to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. And then as you continue on, it says that they were all together. And as they were together, living their lives together now as this family of new creatures, the experience of the Ephesians to reality, having their lives knit together, that they were going house to house. They were sharing meals with sincerity and gladness, awe and wonder swept over a whole community. None of them had any need because they were all sharing all of their possessions with any one of them that had a need or a lack among them and if we're not careful we pass right over this because we assume that this is just for the extroverts and then we want to get on to the more fancy stuff that acts is communicating well that whole community reality that whole do a life a certain way that whole, like, my life is not my own. Now I got to be planted as a part of a people. Now I got to actually do life the way that Acts is suggesting. I got to subscribe to a particular type of teaching. I got to enjoy fellowship. Well, isn't this the reality of Hebrews 10? Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves as most have come into the experience of doing. But it says that they were planted together and that there was a way of life together together. There was a way of life together that actually then produced the product of witnesses that Acts begins to account for as we continue to journey through the following chapters. But what is Luke trying to tell us? He's trying to tell us that God's prescription produces the product that God desires. That when you take on God's forms, God will form what it is that he desires. That when you build it the way that God says to build it, that he is going to bless it and his desires will be fulfilled through it. But this is the reality. When we let God form it, his promise is always to fill it. But when we don't want to take on God's forms... Then we create our own formulas, and we're always begging God to bless the things that we're doing. But you'll never have to bless or beg God to bless what you're doing when you build it the way that God says to build it. In the initial days of creation, God takes several days to create the forms And he forms things. He's creating forms. He takes several days to form things, and then he takes several days to fill things. Well, the pattern has not changed because it is the promise. The divine prescription is this. When you take my forms, I will fill the things that you let me form. And this is what Acts is communicating. They now conformed to a certain way of life together. And that way of life together actually produced by way of a life of discipleship, a powerful people. We should be asking particular questions as we journey through the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 3, we find Peter and James going to prayer in the afternoon. Signs and wonders, power and demonstration by way of healing a man at the gate beautiful. Right? We're all familiar with this episode. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I do have. The man rises. There's all of this celebration out in the streets. But there's not just celebration, there's also controversy. Peter and John are actually beaten in the streets and apprehended by the authorities. They're put in jail and brought before in Acts 4, the council of the elders and the legal authorities. But what type of people are these men is the question that we most ask because we want to be like them. Because in our own individual desire to be extraordinary, we see the evidence of a certain type of witness and we are trying to fit our life into what is the evidence without understanding what has been the discipleship. And Peter and John are beaten before the authorities and they leave jail, considering it all joy to have been mistreated and aligned with the man Jesus. And they leave jail in joy and run straight to a prayer meeting. (laughs) What type of men is this? But that is one way to view the circumstance. Another way would be to say who actually discipled these guys. How much effort or investment went into and how long of a period of formation was required in order for such a witness to become evident in the Bible story. But because we don't appreciate the process, We only appreciate the highlights. We appreciate the movie reel. We appreciate game seven, last shot, but don't understand the 20 or 30 years of preparation that someone went through in order to have a moment that seemed impressive to the rest of the world. What type of men, what type of company of people discipled guys like this That could, yes, on one side, go through great demonstrations of power and glory and healing out in the streets, but in the same conversation, have enough stature and maturity in God to be beaten in public, jailed for the testimony, and consider it joy to be aligned with King Jesus for what it is that he's doing in their life. What type of community actually had enough maturity in God to disciple men like this? In Acts chapter 6, we now find a situation where the apostles are going through a hostile situation between those that are widows. And here where we find this word in Acts 6:4. will you guys take care of that stuff? we're going to give ourselves to the ministry of prayer and the word. But the charge is bring us seven guys that are going to handle essentially the food pantry. Bring us seven guys who are going to handle the food pantry and the ministry of feeding people day by day. Well, they also have qualifications for people that are going to serve in the food pantry. And listen to what it is that they are actually looking for from the seven guys that they are going to lay their hands on and ordain them to the food pantry. Right? This is not some sort of commissioning to platform and prominence this is not some sort of commissioning and ordaining to super influential in a life of popularity. This is not some sort of commissioning or some sort of release so that you can now take center stage and become the main attraction in a Christian reality. This is, we're gonna lay our hands on you so that you can serve in the food ministry. Bring me seven guys that are full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. Now, if you're not careful, you go from Acts 2 and Acts 3, and I know the pages flip super quick, but if you're not careful, you don't understand the amount of time that has actually lapsed by the time you get to Acts 6, where it is that there is a particular evidence that they are looking for, for faithful men to begin to serve in ministering in the church. By the time you get to Acts chapter 6, some believe, most actually, depending on who you're looking to, believe that it has been anywhere from 8 to 10 years. 8 to 10 years. And the last thing we know about them is that they were doing life together in a particular way. Interesting, isn't it, that the majority of the New Testament encourages us to be the right thing instead of going and doing the right thing? That the majority of the New Testament, the emphasis is actually on building a way of life together that is going to radically cultivate God's power in us and then together as we are gathered as a people. The majority of the new emphasis is putting it on your own transformation. Because the idea is that if you can become the right thing, that then authentically you will then begin to do the right thing. But in our modern era, it is very possible to do the right thing even when you yourself are not the right thing. Here again, we have Paul's charge. Look for real evidence of a transformed life. A man must be tested before he's actually able to serve. There is a requirement of authentication for what it is that God has done. And here in Acts 6, they say, we need seven guys to serve in the food pantry. At this time, scholars believe that the church has risen to 20,000 something people. (laughs) And there is a corporate witness that these seven guys are the real deal. There is a corporate amen that these seven guys are full of the Holy Spirit and full of God's wisdom. Man, you gotta be full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom to serve in the food pantry? Well, that's because Jesus has higher standards than we do. And if you don't understand that it's been eight to ten years, then you lack the necessary appreciation for the process of formation that has actually happened in the lives of these men that has brought them to the place where now the evidence that is becoming visible to the world around them can actually be put on display. Because in Acts 6-5, we find the introduction of one of these seven guys to be Stephen. Stephen. Now, understanding the Bible narrative, Stephen would have been one of the guys, many believe, that would have been there on the day of Pentecost. He would have been gathered with that extraordinary encounter where Peter gets up to preach. He would have been one of the ones amongst the 3,000 plus that would have joined the church in that moment. And then from that moment, responding to the gospel and then responding to rearrange his whole life and now give himself to a way of life together as a part of this family of new creatures, we now are being introduced to Stephen in Acts chapter 6. But it's been 10 years. And for 10 years, what has Stephen been doing? He's been faithful at home. He's been giving himself daily to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. For eight to 10 years, he's been going house to house, sharing his possessions, living in awe and wonder as a part of this new creation family. He's been giving himself in contentment and satisfaction to God in ordinary, unseen places. He's been going in, and all in, in the places that the world says is insignificant. He has been and has become extraordinary in the ordinary. And Stephen, by way of the process and the formation, now has a power that God is ready to put on display. Interestingly enough, similar to John the Baptist, in Mark chapter one, verse four, it says, and John became visible to the region. Or in those days, God made John appear. John wasn't seeking visibility. As a matter of fact, Jesus tells this. What did you go out there to go and see? He says, for there has not been a man that's been born that's greater than John. Well, there are certain things that are to be known about John's life. John lived his entire life in hiddenness. He lived his entire life in obscurity. He prevented himself from all of the religious privileges as the son of Zechariah and went out into the wilderness to follow the voice of the Lord. He lived out in the wilderness with a small group of disciples. How do we know this? In Luke 11, verse one, it says the disciples of John rallied around Jesus and said, teach us how to pray. John had a small group of disciples. He lived in the middle of nowhere. He was unseen by the masses. He lived in obscurity and the rest of the world would consider to be insignificance. But Jesus says, there has not been a man that is greater than John. What is it about John's faithfulness that Jesus details as greatness? There are details in the details. And Stephen has seemingly lived in an unknown reality. For eight to 10 years, he's just serving faithfully. For eight to 10 years, he's not trying to establish his own name. He's not feeling prodded or provoked to have to establish his own ministry in order to feel value or in order to become secure in the place of his identity. Too many of us are feeling called to ministry out of insecurity rather than out of intimacy. And because we see the idol that the life of ministry has become. And we see the way that others are applauded and appreciated. And we see the other value that is ascribed to certain ones that have risen among us. We want our life to be considered in the same conversation. And so the insecurities that have not been dealt within us are driving us to feel a calling that is coming from insecurity rather than from intimacy. Oh, yeah. But there Stephen is being faithful being faithful in things that are unseen. There Stephen is living in joy in the reality of what it looks like to be planted at home and to be faithful in an insignificant place and space. He is going all in in things that the rest of the world has no appreciation for. And then all of a sudden in Acts 6, in verse 5, he is introduced as one of the seven guys that are being ordained to the food pantry. Well, if you don't understand the process of formation, then you should be puzzled and provoked to ask certain questions when Acts begins to continue. Because it moves from verse 5, his introduction and his commissioning to the food pantry, to then in the very next breath, to say Stephen is out in the streets and he's preaching with a wisdom that is irrefutable. There's signs, wonders, miracles, and glory on his life. That he's out in the streets and he is now a witness. His life is providing an evidence. There is a demonstration of gospel reality that is now on display for the rest of the world to see. And Stephen is apprehended. And at the end of Acts 6.15, it's where it says, he stands before them and they all looked at him taking account that his face was glowing like an angel. And here's Stephen. It's the beginning of the end for him, as some would consider. But if you don't understand the details, John the Baptist spends, most believe, 30 years in insignificance. 30 years being unaccounted for. 30 years being faithful to God, but being unseen of and unheard of by the rest of the world. 30 years. And then most scholars and theologians account that John Rose became visible or appeared for a period of 6 to 18 months. And then was put in jail and spent more time in jail than he actually did out in public ministering. 30 years of preparation for six to eight months of ministry, two years in jail to have your head cut off. And most of us would consider John's life was a waste because the majority of his life wasn't spent being appreciated by the masses. The majority of his life wasn't visible to some highlight reel. The majority of his life wasn't spent on conference stages, in front of crusade fields, wasn't taken with selfies with the most important gospel figures in our generation. John's life was a waste. That's what the world would say. But Jesus says there's not a man that's been born that's been greater than John. 30 years of formation for six to eight months of visibility to then spend more time in jail than he actually did publicly visible. Stephen, eight to ten years being forged in the fiery flames of devotion to God amongst a family of new creatures. Eight to ten years being formed. Eight to ten years being faithful. Eight to ten years actually living with satisfaction and contentment, learning how to love God in ordinary, insignificant places, but to call that ministry to the Lord. Man, how we need a radical realignment to the way that we think. We need a real transformation to our perception, our lenses, our scale and value system of the things that we deem to be important. Because there are things that are important to God that are not at all important to us. We're waiting for some highlight moment Some ministry opportunity, bro, I'm telling you, if I could just get the mic before service, bro, I'm gonna prove to them that I could pray the fire down from heaven. Like, I get it, all those other guys are cool, but bro, I'm telling you, if I ever get my chance, like, bro, I'm gonna showcase what I've got. Boy, I'm telling you, if they ever ask me to speak, I'm gonna preach the paint off the wall. I'm gonna tell them everything I know about the Bible if you give me an opportunity. And some of us are waiting for the opportunity to showcase. We're waiting for some special moment because we have a radically different value system than God does. We need to rediscover the joy of ministry and worship to the Lord in doing the dishes at home, in taking out the trash for our family, in going out on a date night with my wife, And I'm not seeing that as some sacrifice for the things that are ultimately more important to me, but I'm seeing that as worship to God because of the primary ministry that he's given to me. And I need to understand the lens of my primary ministry actually being established in my home and not see my home as something that I'm willing to sacrifice for the ultimate sake of being called to ministry. Because most of us, we actually despise the family reality. Some of us are actually thoroughly discouraged with our ordinary life because we see it as a sacrifice that is hindering me from going to the things that I actually believe God has called me to. But let me just encourage you. Anything that you have to sacrifice your family to get is not worth getting. Anything that you have to sacrifice your family to get is not worth getting. And we need to rediscover the joy of the Lord and the purpose and the mission of our primary platform and the authentication of our ministry back in the model of our house. And this is where Stephen's been living life. But the life together has actually discipled a man. The life together has actually given God the space and place that he needs in order to mature the certain type of person that comes out from a way of life together that when pressed that when persecuted that when punished is not running for self-preservation trying to keep his idea of his own ministry intact but is actually standing out in the streets with a face that is glowing and he's there weeping and interceding over enemies and executioners. Rather than looking at Stephen and being like, oh my goodness, he's so impressive. Rather, we should take a few steps backwards and say, where is the impressive community that actually discipled a man like this? Where is the container? Where is the house? Where is the family that actually raised a man that now lives this way? If you see my kids out in public and they are wiling out, they are completely acting in disobedience. You are not only going to consider them, but you are then going to ask the questions. Who raised these little monsters? Where are their parents? Because the idea is there should have been a particular environment that discipled them. And so when we see glimpses of men like Peter and John, men like Stephen, men like Paul, we should ask ourselves the question, where is the environment that they were discipled? Where is the family that they were a part of? And from that family, what way of life together actually created this type of witness? And here we have Stephen. Being martyred out in the streets and standing over him is a man by the name of Saul. And at the end of Acts 7, you have to consider that Stephen is suffering for the sake of the gospel, that Stephen is being martyred, actually the first martyr noted for after Jesus, being martyred out in the streets. But he's had enough formation that he's got real stature and maturity in God, where he sees God's purposes, even in times when the rest of the world would tell him he's failing. Until we've actually been transformed, we won't even be able to discern in moments where the rest of the world tells us we've given our life to something that's not actually really important, when the rest of the world tells us that we're wasting our life and our energy and our gifting, when the rest of the world tells us that we're giving the best of what we have to offer by way of talents and opportunities to things that actually don't matter, we won't even have enough discernment to realize that the things that God values at times are incompatible with what the world system values because if the rulers of the age had actually known what they were doing when they nailed that man Jesus to the cross is what Paul would later say in 1 Corinthians 2, they never would have attempted to execute him or to prevail in their agenda against him. And the reality is, is there will be moments when the rest of the world rallies around us and they criticize us and they mock us And they tell us that we're giving our lives to insignificant things that won't ultimately amount to much, that we're missing out on all of the greater opportunities and realities. But here we have this man, Saul, introduced in the narrative, standing over the body of another man who seemingly wasted his life for Jesus living as a part of a family that discipled him in satisfaction in the ordinary places. And here we have this man weeping over enemies and interceding for executioners. And as you flip the page, you find Jesus visits Saul. And he tells him, now you're going to learn how much you're going to suffer for my namesake. And Paul doesn't take this encounter and immediately rush off to the grand stage because you have to imagine that somewhere in his mind or heart or thinking, he considered a man that he recently just stood over who in his last breath and effort with words used it to intercede For enemies and to weep over executioners. And you have to consider that Paul understood in all of his years of religious formation, he did not have an actual quality or stature or maturity in God that would bring him to the place where he could waste his life in the same way. Because life is gonna provide for us opportunities to reveal to us just at times how plastic all of our attempts have been. And Paul goes unaccounted for for 14 or 15 years because he understands formation is necessary. He understands satisfaction in God is necessary. And in Acts 11, when Barnabas is there at Antioch, he says, I've got to go get Paul. I know it's been a long time, but I know that God's been doing something in his life. And he goes and he grabs him and he brings him to Antioch. And in Acts 13, for someone who never thought I was gonna get there. They're there in the church as a family of new creatures. There's a beautiful conglomerate, there's a beautiful mosaic of people groups from every tribe, nation, and tongue. You have Greeks and Romans, Jews and Africans, all there together as a family, contending for a certain way of life, living in the primary calling to minister to the Lord. They're fasting, praying, and worshiping as a life together in God. They are contending for formation. And out of this environment, it now says in the second half of verse 2 that the Holy Spirit speaks. Are we creating the type of environment? Are we forming the type of family where we have a space and a place and a people that have gone through the due process of formation? of satisfaction and contentment in God in hiddenness, brokenness, obscurity, unseen spaces and places. Are we creating the type of family that has now given God the formation to where now in our way of life together the Holy Spirit can actually begin to speak in the midst of us and commission some of us to the assignments that God has for us? Are we? Because this is the thing that we can't manufacture. You cannot manufacture the Holy Spirit speaking. You cannot mass develop God commissioning people. Now you can get up and go, but God raising someone up and sending them is entirely different. And we have too much get up and go and not enough get anchored get grounded get formed get satisfied get broken get contentment and then out of that reality as a way of life together if god desires to speak and send then amen but we have everything we need in a way of life together are we creating that type of environment Are we living this type of life together that can actually give God the container to provide the necessary discipleship so that it can produce the type of evidence in witnesses that we see by the Holy Spirit speaking? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, I've got a group of folks. They're actually going for it. Man, they've committed themselves to this way of life together. Man, they've responded to the gospel they've now reoriented their whole life as a response to the gospel, and they're living devoted to it. They're living faithfully to it, not as a means to an end, but actually as the means and the end. Because the reality is there in Antioch, there was the beautiful mosaic of the nations, but there was also prophets and teachers and sent ones that we would consider to be apostelloed, divinely commissioned apostles. So there as a reality, life together, a beautiful mixture of gifting, a beautiful mixture of ethnicities, but all together as family, doing life as ministry to God. Do you see your day-to-day life as ministry to the Lord? You should. Because I'm telling you, if God recalibrates your perspective and if he reorients your value system, then you'll be able to engage the purpose that God has for you in your actual life day-to-day rather than trying to escape the ordinary and insignificant, by way of our consideration, reality of our life day to day. Where I can get up and clean my house, and worship God, and know that I'm seen. And I don't have to video it and put it on Instagram, in order to know that I'm appreciated. Man, I'm telling you, it's nauseating, but it's nauseating because it comes out of insecurity. And if we understood the brokenness of the human sat, or the human condition, and how much real contentment in God we lack. We'd stop trying to perform for people because we'd understand that we're visible to God. We'd understand that we're valued by God. We'd understand that if there is a moment where God has not appearing for us, so be it. But that's not necessarily my goal. I'm not working in obscurity so to try to create visibility because I understand that I have all the visibility that I've ever longed for. That God sees me, that God loves me, that God values me, that I'm living loved, that I'm living valued, that I'm living important to the Lord, and that I now see purpose in the day-to-day mission of what is my normal life. Life, and I'm not trying to escape my normal life to get into ministry because everything about my life has become ministry to God. And we need a radical recalibration for the things that we value. 30 years, we don't even know much about Jesus. All we know is that he's been living faithful under the yoke of his father. And then for three to four years, we have this public visibility. And we ask more questions about the three and a half years than we do the 30. It's because there's something in us that values particular things that the world appreciates and applauds. And we have to recognize it in order for the transformation that's necessary in order to realign us with the things that God values. I promise you, your life will never be the same if you let the Lord actually destroy every perspective, every paradigm, every way of thinking that is producing a way of living that is not in alignment with the joy-filled values that God has. You'd stop being discouraged. You'd stop living under some burden of competition and comparison. You'd stop feeling unappreciated or devalued. You'd stop seeking for all of the applause and the praise and the accolades of a crowd or even a particular crowd or even a specific individual themselves. You'd actually be free. Restore to me the joy of my salvation is what david prays man for some of us we need a restoration of joy to actually live our lives in a joy-filled awe-filled wonder-filled response to god in obscurity for some of us things aren't necessarily going to change right that's not the promise in the pep rally hey, you get somebody, you get the right person to pray for you, praise God, everything's going to be different. For some of us, things might, might not become different, but will be different. And even if circumstances don't change, will be changed. And the influence won't be my circumstances on me, but it will be me on my circumstances. Some of us need a radical recalibration, and I believe that that's what's on the Lord's heart this morning. I believe the Lord wants to touch our hearts and set us free to where we can actually live for him through the offering of our lives as worship to him and that we will regain a value for a way of life together that will be the container of discipleship that if God would so ever decide to speak and commission then let him be the one that does it but because we will be content in the container of family and discipleship we will have found all of our satisfaction in living our life in God together and the Holy Spirit spoke in the midst of them and said set apart for me Barnabas and Saul because there's an assignment that I have for them and how do we know that they had real contentment in God Is because verse 3 tells us that even after the Holy Spirit spoke, they kept on with their way of life. They kept on fasting and praying. They kept on worshiping and ministering to the Lord. Wait, wait, wait. You mean they fasted even after God spoke to them? You mean they kept on in prayer even after they got a word from the Lord? You mean they continued to contend and to tarry and to go after it even after there were certain conclusions that would have caused most of us to bow out and then go find something else to do? I'm not just checking into worship hoping that God will speak to me and then separate me. Because these realities are not a means to an end. And even after the Holy Spirit spoke, they continued on. And then they laid their hands on them. And they said, what God is doing among us, we amen this in you guys. Go and do what God is saying. Man, I believe the Lord is inviting all of us into the joy of discipleship and formation that happens as we devote ourselves to a way of life together that is a right response to this gospel. The Lord is inviting us. The Lord is inviting us into the process. The Lord is inviting us to respond to him and to rearrange our lives, to be devoted to a way of life together that is actually going to be the container that forms his desires. And may he speak in the midst of us and fulfill all of his purposes. Thank you again for listening today. We pray that it has fanned into flame the love that you have for him. If you would like more information about Burning Ones, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on social media, visit our website at www.burningones.org or download our app.